0: Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we bow in your presence and we ask that the Holy Spirit of God would open the word of God to all the people of God. Speak, Lord, for your servants seek to hear. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So what can we learn from the great beginning of the church? What can we learn from the great beginning of the church? I wish you a happy and blessed Pentecost, and as we begin, you're gonna to need to turn to Acts chapter two, and as you do, I want to remind you of something as we begin. We're now at the third great beginning of the three great beginnings in the Bible. The first one is creation, when the Holy Spirit broods over the tobu Wabohu. that's the formless and void thingamajiggy, at the beginning, and when there was nothing, then there was something. And the only reason you and I exist and that there's something rather than nothing is because the Spirit of God, through the will of the Father, made it happen. And then the same Spirit in Luke 2 broods over the womb of Mary. Gabriel promised the Holy Spirit will come upon you, will overshadow you. And she said, let it be to me according to your word. And that same Spirit comes, and boom, you have the incarnation in Christmas, and everything has changed. And now that same Spirit that was hovering over the face Of the formlessness of void at the beginning and the same spirit that was hovering over Mary's womb, it's now hovering in Acts 2 over the womb of the church. And boom, when it falls on the church, the church explodes into history and it's never been the same again. So this is a great beginning, and great beginnings are of great significance. What can it teach us? All right, look at your text and let's think together. First of all, it's about new position. One of the things I want you to note about this story is if you think about it carefully, you're not dealing with the same Peter that you've been dealing with. Anybody notice that? And all were amazed and perplexed, verse 12. What does this mean? But Peter said, Lord, help. Right? Remember that? He got out of the boat and he thought he was going to walk on the water. Help. You remember Peter. He has a tendency to shoot from the lip. Remember Peter? That Peter, the impetuous Peter right? Shoot first, ask questions later. No, this is a totally different Peter. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. This is a confident Peter. This is a clear Peter. He's standing on a firm foundation. Why? Because Luke tells us at the beginning of this book something terribly significant. It's a throwaway line, and we have a tendency to miss it. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, it's a two-volume work. Luke and Acts are two parts of one whole. In the first book, O Theophilus, I told you about what Jesus began to do and to teach, which means what? It means this. It means in the second book, O Theophilus, I'm talking about what Jesus continued to do and to teach, which means what? It means this. It means it's the Acts of the Apostles, It's the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. Yes, all that's true. But most especially, it's the acts of the ascended Christ through the Holy Spirit in and through the apostles. You don't get Pentecost unless you have an ascension. The the crucifixion completes the gospel. The resurrection validates the gospel. The ascension finishes the gospel. But Pentecost further corroborates the gospel. Pentecost can only happen if it fulfills what Jesus promised in John 14. I'm going to go away and prepare a place for you, and it's going to be better for you because I'm going to send my comforter, and I'm going to be your advocate. He'll be another advocate, but I'm going to be your advocate, which means that up there right now before the throne of God, Jesus is interceding for Holy Cross, for you and for me, and he's our advocate, which means what? It means that if I'm stuck before the throne of God and all these accusations are coming about all the terrible things Jesus is looking at and seeing that Kendall did this week. Jesus is saying to the Father, I already paid for that. You can't hold that against him. You can't. The the ransom has already been paid. I have an advocate. Peter is absolutely convinced. He's absolutely convinced that the Holy Spirit has done all that Jesus said. Everything that is necessary for his life and his salvation has been accomplished. To be in the book of Acts, to be in a birth church, is to look at confident Christians. Do you have any idea how important this is? Did you know that Satan has a full-time job? Did you know that? He actually does. You can look at, for those of you taking notes this morning, this is Revelation 12, verse 10. But this is a full-time job. It says, the accuser of the brethren was thrown down and he accuses them day and night. His job is to make sure you have no confidence in your status as a child of God. That's his full-time job. Did you catch what it said? Day and night. That pretty much covers it. Right? 11 to midnight, he's doing it. 6 o'clock in the morning, he's doing it. And what is accusation? It is, you are a sinner. You're worthless. You have nothing to contribute to the kingdom. And if you believe that, then you're right in the book of Hebrews, which is all about being written to a, book of, a group of Christians who have no confidence, right? And, he says, and, and the writer says, strengthen your weak knees. You don't have to be uh, crippled by the accusations of Satan. He has nothing to hold against you because Jesus has done everything that is necessary for your life and your salvation. You can be a confident Christian. Here's the late great bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle. Now, assurance goes far to set the child of God free. It enables him to free, feel the great business of a life is a settled business. A great debt is a paid debt. A great disease is a healed disease. A great work is a finished work. And all other business, debts, diseases, and works are then by comparison small. In this way, assurance makes impatient in tribulation, calm under bereavements, unmoved in sorrow, not afraid of evil things, in every condition content, for it gives him a fixedness of heart. There's a phrase that'll preach. A fixedness of heart, utterly confident. There is a beautiful expression in the prayer book service for the visitation of the sick. The almighty Lord, who is a most strong tower. To all who put their trust in him, be now and evermore thy defense. That's Pentecost, the unleashing of a confident church, sure of the certain hope of the resurrection and the ascension, because Jesus is up there, and only the Jesus who is up there can send the Spirit down to here. Are you all with me? By the way, as we go flying by as Anglicans, I do hope you appreciate why Cramer has all four comfortable words in the middle of the Eucharistic liturgy every week, and what are they talking about? The need for you to have confidence, and they give it to you every week, right? This is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Why do we get that every week? Because we're so good at losing our confidence that we have any place to stand in right relationship to the righteousness of God. The comfortable words are because we're so uncomfortable and so good at getting uncomfortable because Satan is accusing us all the time. Are we all together so far? So number one, new position. Number two, new power. Look at your text. You already know this, but I just want to emphasize it. This is a story about lots of things, but if it's about anything, it's about power. There's the sound like a rushing wind. There's the mighty uh, tongues as if of fire. So we've got at least three senses. You can see it you can hear it, you can feel it. Maybe the the tongues that they're speaking in other languages, maybe they could even taste it. But nobody goes away from us from this experience saying, oh, geez, I wonder if God showed up. Nobody's asking that question. They're asking the question that they were asking Peter. What does this mean? This is awesome. This is amazing. This is perplexing. This is stunning. This is power. Paul says... In 1 Corinthians, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. And that word power in Greek is the Greek word from which we get the English word dynamite. John Stott used to say years ago when he was in the airport and they would ask him, do you have anything to declare? He would say, I have to declare that I have dynamite in my heart. The power of the Holy Spirit in my heart, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. He was always tempted to say that in response. If anything was true, this is about power. Now, this is loaded this day with symbolism. It's agricultural, it's historical, and it's powerful. All three. It's agricultural because it's the first of feasts, it's the feast of first fruits, it's a feast of weeks, it's seven weeks after the Passover. That's a week of weeks. And in ancient Judaism, it was the day on the festival when you celebrated the ingathering of the harvest, the fact that you could have uh, something to eat, the fact that you could harvest the fruits of the earth, that you could get nutrition and energy from the provision of God. So it's the feast of first fruits. It's also in ancient Judaism, the feast of the giving of the law, Exodus chapter 20, when Moses came down from the mountain, you remember that. And oh yes, there was all that fire and that lightning, you remember that. The same fire and lightning that's unleashed here. And it's a fulfillment of the promise in Jeremiah 31. I will will write my law upon their hearts. So Moses comes down and gives the two tablets of the external law. And on Pentecost, the Spirit comes down and writes the law on the hearts of all of his people. But it's more than that. It's also theologically significant. It's a reversal, is it not, of the horrible story of the Tower of Babel. You remember that. In Genesis chapter 11, when they're all awesome and talking about, you know, they're all Americans, self-made people worshiping their own maker. You do know that about our culture, right? That's what we do, right? We're self-made people who worship our own maker, and they're all out there, and they're building a tower to their great significance, and God says, I'll have none of that, thank you very much. And he confuses their language, and he sends them into all sorts of places with all sorts of different uh, tongues, and they're not able to to conjoin. And here we have the exact opposite. We have the Holy Spirit falling, and all these people who are gathering at this incredible festival. So Jerusalem is loaded for bear with people. How convenient. The Holy Spirit wastes nothing. They're all there. It's the most well-attended festival in ancient Judaism. The weather's almost good, always good at this time of year, great attendance. And everybody hears what's being spoken in their own language, and they're from all over the place. So it's like I'm speaking French and someone else is speaking English, and I'm understanding what they're saying, and they're understanding what I'm saying, except it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of languages, which means what? It means the church is a multi-ethnic, multilingual, multiracial community, which is started by God. It's an awesome reality in history. And that is God's vision for the church, that we may be one as he and the Father are one, as diverse as we are, that we might be together. It's an awesome act of power. So here's the question, brothers and sisters. Do you actually believe as a Christian that the same power is in you and me that raised Jesus from the dead? Is Paul right? Is the kingdom of God not just about talk, but of power? One story. Is this world vision magazine a number of years ago. Love this story because it's true and it's fascinating. It's about World Vision and it's about a community about two hours from Addis Ababa in Ethiopia and they've been asked to come and build an irrigation system in this community. They get to the community and it's very clear that the community has been suffering for a long time. They've had lots of famine and lots of difficulty and there's very clear patterns of behavior in the community, and the one which stands above them all is there's this humongous giant tree in the community, which everyone in the community worships. Adults would kiss the great trunk as they spoke pass by. They would speak of the tree in reverent, hushed tones. The children would actually say, and they heard this early on when they were there, quote, the tree saved us. Now I bet you know what's gonna happen. They're just building this irrigation system. But they're Christians, and they start hearing about animal sacrifices which are being made, and they're hearing about all the fear of the tree, and the more they spend time in the community, the more it's clear that there's an idolatrous barrier between the gospel getting into the community, and the community and the idolatrous barrier is the tree! And they're having their community devotions, the World Vision workers, one morning. And they get to that place. Amazing how this happens. You do know this about the Holy Spirit. He's so good at lighting up the scriptures. They're just there. It's just one particular morning. They're just reading the gospel. And here's what they read. If you have faith, you can say to this tree, be taken up and removed, and it will obey you. They were stunned. They were silent. Everyone knew what it meant. They were David, and they were called to bring down Goliath. So they began to pray for the overthrow of the tree, having no idea of the full significance of what that would mean. Of course, they being Christians, they were together, and it began to get out into the community that they were praying against the tree. So not only were they praying against the tree, but everybody in the community knew they were praying against the tree, which didn't go over super well. Six months later, the tree began to dry up. The leafy foliage disappeared. And finally, on one magnificent and awesome day, the tree collapsed like a stricken giant into the river. Here's his, his, his eyewitness response of the response of the community. The people of the community were astonished, proclaiming, your God has done this. Your God has dried up the tree. In the following week, over 100 of the members of the community received Jesus Christ. Why? because they saw his power displayed in answer to specific Christian prayer. Bang! That's Pentecost. That's what Pentecost actually means. It's not a power back there just, although it's absolutely that. It's a power right here at our disposal. And we have to ask the Pentecost question. What are we gonna do with the power that God is giving us at our disposal. So number one, new position. Number two, new power. Number three, still not done, new posture. I love this story for lots of things. This is a bit of a walk back to last week, but I want you to remember the ascension, because the ascension and Pentecost go together, and I want you to remember that scene when early on in Acts, Jesus disappears. And you gotta be sympathetic to the disciples at this point. They love this guy, he's the most important thing in the world to them, and he's gone. So the way that the text describes them is, it says they are looking up intently into the sky, and I think I've told you this before, but it's, it's really frighteningly powerful what Luke is doing in Greek. He basically is straining the language to its very limit, because when he says they're looking up into the sky, it's not just that they're looking up, it's that they're looking up and they're still looking up and they're stuck looking up. They're doing nothing but look up. It's like people watching, people watch a tennis match. It's just fundamentally unnatural. The way that the Greek reads is they were looking up, up intently into the sky. It's a triple superlative. You see what he's saying? He's saying they're totally stuck. And of course they're stuck. He means the world, there he goes. Oh no. They feel bereft. They didn't even know he was gonna be resurrected. He was resurrected, everything changed, and there he goes again. Dang. But it's important what the, what the two angelic visitors say. Men of Galilee, verse 11, why do you stand looking into heaven? Here's John Stott. Really crucial stuff for Pentecost. There was something fundamentally anomalous about their gazing up into the sky when they had been commissioned to go to the ends of the earth. It was the earth, not the sky, which was to be their preoccupation. Their calling was to be witnesses, not stargazers. The vision they were to cultivate was not upwards in nostalgia to the heaven, which had received Jesus, but outwards in compassion to a lost world, which needed him. It is the same for us. Now listen, we need to hear the implied message of the angels. You have seen him go, you will see him come, but in between that going and coming, there must be another. The Spirit must come, and you must go. Which means what? It means the whole purpose of Pentecost is not simply to gather in and reverse Babel, this multi ethnic, multilingual, multiracial new community, which is the people of God, the church, but is the church sent to be his witness to the whole world? What's the first thing that happens after Babel in Genesis? After 11 comes 12. You remember 12. And God came to Abraham and said, Go. Go where? I'm not going to tell you. Go for how long? He doesn't tell him that either. He doesn't tell them anything except go, and through you, all the families of the world will be blessed. God is a global God. He built the whole world by the power of his creative hand. He died for the whole world. He's coming back to redeem and recreate the whole world, and God sends his church just to the local community? No! No! <laughs> He sends his church to the whole world. You will see him come, you have seen him go, but in the meantime the spirit must come and you must go. In other words, Pentecost is a centrifugal force for mission. If it really falls, if you really get what Pentecost is about, you will inevitably be a person who realizes every blessing of your life that you've been given is a blessing that you've been given to bless others. You are to look out, to quote the late great Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael Ramsey, the church is the only organization in the world whose primary mission is dedicated to those who are not yet her members. That's what this is all about. Now I want you to think about that not simply in terms of a task, but also in terms of time. Go into all the world. You will be my witnesses in Gia and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So when they're told to go, And when they're rebuked for looking up into heaven, it's not simply that they're rebuked because their posture in terms of what they're to do is wrong. It's also their posture in terms of time is wrong. They're not to go from here backward. They're to go from here forward. Now, that may seem like a little thing, but it's not. Years ago, I was reading some psychological research, and I came across something that fascinated me ever since. They call it the end of history illusion. It's just an incredibly fascinating thing to me. These psychologists took 1,900 people from every socioeconomic background, every walk of life, and they did these comprehensive experiments, and they found that every single group that they worked with, this was fundamentally true. Every single person believed that basically who they were today is who they were going to be tomorrow, and how things were today was basically how things were going to be tomorrow. And the very same people of whom this were true also had abundant evidence in their life from just recent history that nothing could be further from the truth in their own lives. Even though they knew they changed a ton in the past, they expected no change or almost no little change in the future. By the way, I found it fascinating, they came up with two explanations for this fact, which are loaded for us as Christians. Most people have confidence in their own wonderfulness, this is their language, not mine, and feel quite good about themselves. That's reason number one. But reason number two, fascinating, the constructive process of looking forward is much more strenuous than the reconstructive process of looking backwards. Imagining what is yet to unfold is much more difficult than remembering the past. Here, forward. I've told you before, I'll never tire of telling you, my friend, Mike Lumpkin, whose father was in World War II of that generation. You remember this story? He was a chaplain, and he was on Tarawa, not not Iwo Jima that gets all the uh, majority of the history and the remembrances, but one of those other islands where the Marines went and they all uh, charged the island, and almost all of them died, and Mike's father had to bury them, and he didn't say anything about the Second World War except one day when they were talking, he said one thing. He said, Mike, I buried... So many Marines, I can't count them. But there was one thing that was true in every case. Never forget this. They all fell forward. Every single one. Every one that I buried was forward into the sand. Face first. Face first into the sand. That's Christianity. That's Pentecost. Into the uttermost parts of the earth. Not the difficult but nevertheless manageable work of reconstructing the past, but the much more difficult work of going from here forward and realizing that actually, in your own life, if you look at your high school yearbook picture, you have abundant evidence. <laughs> abundant evidence that you're not gonna be the same in a year from now, right? How much time do you have? I mean, it's, it's laughable to me that I'm here. I've been here less than two years. If you back up the clock three years, I was working with my best friend, over on uh, at Christ St. Paul's Young's Island, living in Somerville, doing this stuff for the diocese. Mark Lawrence was my bishop, and uh, now Mark Lawrence isn't my bishop. My best friend is in Texas, and here I am. And no, I wasn't expecting it, and no, it isn't remotely connected to what I thought was going to happen. And yet, here I am, just like the people in the research, thinking, oh yeah, well, everything's just going to go right on. No, it's not. Jesus said the spirit blows where he wills. John 3. Last time I checked, he's pretty good at unpacking the way the spirit works. The spirit who worked unpredictably and surprisingly at Pentecost is going to work unpredictably and surprising in our lives and he wants us to go into the world and to go into the future because God's out there in the future. Pillar of fire by day. Um, pillar of fire by night. Pillar of cloud by day. You all with me? So new posture. Let me try it again. Is that right? Yeah, new, new position, new power, new posture. All right, now I'm going to wrap it up. Just a couple of questions. First of all, just to say a word about this issue of Christian confidence. Um, a Christian is someone who is sure that they are washed in the blood of the Lamb. And I know that there are people here this morning who either aren't Christians, who are, who are Christians with wobbling knees like those Hebrews in the, in the New Testament to whom the book of Hebrews is written. And you need to hear strongly the message of Um, pentecost this morning at the level of assurance christ jesus did all that is necessary for your life and your salvation he's at the right hand of the father advocating for you he died for you he rose for you he ascended for you there is now therefore now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus the blood of christ cleanses you from all sin all nothing's left out no codicils no small print gone do you know that do you believe that do you live that does your prayer life reflect that that's the first question The second question is more subversive and it's got kind of two parts. And the way I have it in my notes is are you seeking God's power? And I want to kind of ask it in in two directions. The the first thing I want to ask is just is is it true of your life in terms of the tasks that you are called to undertake? Everybody I'm talking to is things that they're called to do this week and the past week that they did. The question is not that. The question is how are you approaching those tasks? And if you take... Pentecost, seriously, what you gotta realize is it's just an ordinary day. Everybody that went to Jerusalem that day thought it was gonna be the Feast of Weeks. (laughs) They thought it was gonna be the festival. They didn't know it was gonna be Pentecost. It was just an ordinary day. It became extraordinary by the power and the presence of the Spirit. In other words, actually, Pentecost is like all of life. All of life is about the ordinary being made extraordinary by the power and the purpose and the work of God. I got the biggest kick a number of years ago. I was sitting there reading about Matt Redman, who's one of my favorite contemporary Christian composers, and I read the story of his famous song now, 10,000 Reasons, which many of you may know. But what I love about this story is this, this is exactly what I'm talking about. So he's actually been working all day. It's an, he's exhausted, and he's got his wife and his five kids at home, and he's dying to get home, and he's completely wiped out at the end of the day. It's like 5.30, and they've been there since 6 a.m., and his coworker says, can I just play you one melody? I've been working on this. And I, just to, I just want you to check it out. And Matt's like, oh, my gosh, you've got to be kidding me. And he thinks, I just want to go home. But he, says, he, finally, he finally reneges. And uh, they wrote the song in an hour. They wrote the song in the next hour. Now, you can't, you can't legislate that. You can't predict that. But that's, that's what a life yielded to this. How do you, how do you explain that? You don't. It's just the Holy Spirit blows where he wills and he shows up. But the point is, if you yield to the Spirit, whether you're doing your homework or reading a book or saying your prayers or being faithful to your spouse or sitting at the dinner table, it's not ordinary if the Holy Spirit's there. The question is, are we living out of Zechariah? Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. You all with me so far? That's the first question. The second question is a little more subversive, which is, if the power of the spirit that birthed the new church at Pentecost was about getting the church rolling in history, then it seems to me that for a church that's in the search process and in the interim process, we have to ask some very hard questions. And I think what I wanna say to you very honestly is this, you do know that um, being in a search process is a trap for a parish, right? You do know this. You know why it's a trap? Because it's very simple. We wait, we don't do anything, we just wait and we do our normal stuff and we don't change anything. And then the new guy comes and he fixes everything. So it's simple. We wait, a new person comes, and then everything changes the way it's supposed to because he tells us and he does it. Right? So the congregation congregates and the minister ministers. Right? And the congregation is just sitting there as spectator sport. It. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous, right? It makes me think of the definition of a football game, right? 50,000 people who desperately need exercise, watching 22 people who absolutely do not. (laughs) Right, and the the whole point is get in the game. So don't fall into the trap. The the point is, if, if the interim process is gonna work at the level of a Pentecost approach, then whoever's being called here has to be being worked on by the Spirit, but so do we. That is to say, we have to become a different pair than we are now when whoever comes, comes. It's not just about them, it's about us. It's about asking the hard question, who does the Lord want us to become? How does the Lord want us to change so that we're prepared for whoever comes to take us into the next step? That's a more subversive question because it involves painful openness to possible change that might make us uncomfortable. Can you imagine? Last question. What about that relationship to time? Are you really living from this day forward? I like Phillips, Craig, and Dean as well in contemporary Christian music. They have a line from one of their songs, yesterday's a closing door. You don't live there anymore. Spend the rest of the morning on that. There's not a person I'm talking to here that doesn't wish that parts of their life could be reworked or rewritten, and we all spend our time casting our minds back And we at least have to own the fact that to a degree we look like the disciples staring up intently into the sky. And Jesus says, no longer. I want your energy just like the Marines, just like the Holy Spirit falling on the church. I want them from here forward. Pillar of cloud by day, um, pillar of fire by night. I'm out there in the future, and the question I'm asking you is where do you want to be taken and where do I want you to go from here forward? From here forward. It's really in these days to bash and criticize the church. She is the bride of Christ, though. And it's what Christ thinks of the church that matters. Well, here's a vision of a church worth joining, brothers and sisters. It's charismatic in the best sense, spirit-led. It's confident, and it's called. I'd move heaven and earth to build a church like, to join a church like that. Charismatic, confident, and called. The Holy Spirit fell on the church and the world was never the same. May it fall on us too and change us in the way that he wants us to change and take us into the future that he has for us. In Jesus' precious name, amen.